This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 132 of the Dressage Radio Show, brought to you with the generous support of Equestrian Collections. Stafford and joining me this week is Heather Blitz. Heather. Hi Chris, how are you? I'm in good form and you're in sunny Florida again, back home and I'm sure glad to be home after all your traveling. Well, it's a great feeling to be back and having a a normal routine sort of in place again and um, it's going to be a super busy season this year here in Wellington for me and actually it already is. My um, barn is full I'll actually have an overflow, and it's only November, so it's um, it's starting strong. But that's it's good. And and how's that scruffy pony that has a couple of medals hanging around his neck now? He is starting to realize that he's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say that he's spoiled because he's not. He's um, I mean, he is, but he doesn't take advantage of that. But he's starting to get a little more grown up just kind of I think he he knows what he did and that he has a lot of people who admire him and he's just is super confident he's really feeling like an adult these days and um, he's working with so much power and just strength in his body now he really to me feels like this is a new era for him and that is his adulthood um, so it's very exciting and um, just he's just really ready to forge right into this new career of his at Grand Prix this year. The boy has grown up into a man, huh? He really has, and he just he's so different now. I mean, he's took him a while to grow because his, his height and his type. You know, he's just that, that type was a little bit slow to develop some mass to him, but he's just um, really changed. He's so different now. He's, he's quite muscular. He is so powerful and strong and really supple. He's so happy. And I heard on the Facebook, uh, Vin, uh, Facebook grapevine that he now has over 1,500 fans. He has 1,500 fans that have, uh, yes, that have joined his fan page. I think he might have a few more than that in the world, but those are the ones that have joined the fan page. (laughs) (laughs) It's extraordinary, the following for this horse. Well, interestingly, this week we're going to talk about breeding because we often get asked to cover this subject, Heather, and we're going to choose Danish Warmbloods because of Paragon and of your association with Oak Hill Ranch in Folsom, Louisiana. We're going to hear from Richard Freeman, the owner of Oak Hill Ranch, because as you said, every time you've been on the show, we talked about Paragon and his development over time and, you know, going through those stages from, you know, being a foal to being a a gangly teenager and now growing up and maturing into this full-blown Grand Prix horse. It's really interesting watching those all those stages because I know you've said to me sometimes, you know, he hasn't looked that attractive when he was doing his growing. Do you think he's actually finished growing now? I'm pretty sure he is. He's going to be, uh, he's going to be nine in about, Four, five, four months, 
Anyway, yeah, he's coming nine, so I don't think horses grow much past six years old. And I know it's interesting because they talk, yeah, because we talk about them maybe not growing taller, but growing out and filling the frame because he had such a big frame. Oh, right, and he is starting to fill out, but he it's sort of the beginning of his filling out. I mean, height-wise, he's not going to go over, you know, his height. He's 18 hands, he's going to stay there. But I should hope not, because your ears are going to pop, you know. <laughs> she barely fit in the airplane any, as it was on the way to Guadalajara. If you didn't see that video, it's on YouTube. He barely fit in the plane. Um, his little ears were bent down by the ceiling. So I hope he doesn't grow higher, but he is... Uh, just, I think, at the beginning of filling out, you know, just getting more, more more substance to him. So, yes, he will definitely, he's going to put on weight in uh, in muscle mass and just maturity, just becoming an adult. He'll definitely still, you know, gain quite a bit of body. Yeah, all of that to do as he, as he fills out a frame. Well, we're going to talk to Richard in just a moment, but before we do, I want to remind you of our sponsor here on the Dressage Radio Show, and that is Equestrian Collections. Riding in a cold climate can be tough enough if you're not wearing the right clothing, so this is where Equestrian Collections can help you with its extensive range of winter riding britches, from well-known brands such as Kerritz, Romp, Tough Rider, Iridian, Ecus, Ovation and Ariat, to name just a few. There is something for all occasions and conditions to ensure you're protected against the elements. And you can find out more about these popular bridges and the full range of Equestrian Collections winter wear by following the link on our show notes or going directly to equestriancollections.com. And if you use coupon code HRN at the checkout, you'll get a further $10 off your next order of $100 or more. Equestrian Collections is a participating retailer of the Horse World Gives Back campaign. Well, Heather, Richard Freeman and Oak Hill Ranchers, obviously you have a long association with them. Uh, Give us a little bit of of background and the picture to this facility before we bring Richard in. Well, it's a... um multi-hundred-acre uh, ranch, I don't know, maybe 500 acres, um, in sort of the rolling, hilly part of Louisiana, just north of Lake Pontchartrain, which is just north of New Orleans, so it takes about an hour to get there from the airport, and it's in a beautiful part of the country down there, lots of pine trees and lots of green grass and um, lots of, you know, rolling hills. It's, it's quite beautiful, and they have a... Uh, I think maybe 30 stall barn and lots and lots of pastures for all of the mares and foals and um, offspring, you know, that they have that they raise. So it's a it's a gorgeous facility, and they have a, a website. You can look at the pictures, um, oakhillranch.com, and they've got a, a lot of pictures to take a look to see what it looks like. And it's somewhere that you spent some time and got to know all about Danish warm bloods and got totally converted, didn't you? And that between that and spending time in Denmark, of course. Yeah, I had some Danish connections before I started with Richard at Oak Hill Ranch, but um, it really sealed the deal when I started riding those horses. I worked for him for, I think it was around seven years. Um, at first, at just a kind of a part-time level, and then I became well, full-time there, including... Um, being able to take the ride on Rambo, his Grand Prix stallion, um, his foundation stallion for his whole program. So that was quite a quite an amazing experience and um, just completely invaluable. So a big part of who I am today. 
Well, we, as I said, we want to talk about breeding and, and hear about Richard's philosophy on breeding successful dressage horses in just a second because here in the States, Heather, we've always had to go to Europe for breeding stock and it's so important that we do establish you know, enough breeding stock here that we don't have to keep going over over the pond there uh, and and you know a lot of people were, uh, are getting more educated aren't they in this country about the importance of breeding and following those lines and you know if you look at a show program it will have you know the the sire and the dam in there just as it would in 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 europe that that is really important isn't it as part of your edu- education about breeding lines and lineage and uh, but just as it would be in the thoroughbred industry yeah, it's it's getting better. You know, people are getting more knowledgeable about the bloodlines, um, and the horses that they're riding. But I still am a little surprised sometimes if I go to a clinic or you meet somebody and talk about their horse, and I and I might ask, oh, what what are the bloodlines? And sometimes I'm surprised that the the rider might not know. To me, it's just such an important thing, and it gives you such a, a an insight, you know, to the horse if you know the bloodline and if you don't there's a lot of people you could ask I'm sure that do but um it's a huge insight to you know what you might have as training strengths or weaknesses and I think just a, a great thing to know about so it's um whether you're breeding or just to wanting to you know know what you're gonna have to ride it's um for both reasons just a really smart thing to learn and of course if you're in Europe as you've been it is a totally different culture and attitude to breeding, and it is something that people do know automatically, don't they? That's not there's yeah. no guessing game. They are far better educated uh, about breeding lines. Yeah, it's, I mean, warm blood breeding has been a part of their culture for centuries, and here it's still you know fairly new for our country. So we got to catch up a little. We have all right. Well, we're going to catch up with Richard Freeman now, who, uh, as I said, his. Uh, Breeding operation down there in Louisiana is all about Danish warm blood. So let's get Richard on the line. Well, joining us now is Richard Freeman, the owner of Oak Hill Ranch in Louisiana. Welcome to the show, Richard. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you and Heather go back a long way, and I know that uh, you promote your uh, breeding operation as the U.S.'s premier Danish warm blood ranch. Um, first of all, let's hear how you two met. Uh, repeat the question, please. How did you and Heather meet? Oh, well, Heather was working in the Folsom area, and we ran, a, ran into each other at various clinics and shows, and she wanted to make a move from the location she was in and asked if she could rent some stalls for her uh, training operation, and she did that. And that's how we got started. Well, Heather, how did you become so fond as you are of Danish warblets? Well, um, kind of two things that are sort of a coincidence. I had just had, uh, before I met Richard and knew about his breeding program and Danish horses from him, um, I had had some clients uh, that wanted to go to Europe and look for horses for sale. And there were some in Denmark that we looked at. So there was a little connection there. And I did like the horses um, that I've seen in Denmark. You know, every trip I've been to Denmark to see horses, I'm always impressed with their quality. And um, then the the other thing was was that I was acquainted with his horses that he was producing at his ranch, but those were sort of separate incidences. So it's quite kind of a coincidence, but both times I had been, you know, quite impressed by the breed and 
especially by the the way Richard has been breeding them. Well, Richard, you clearly have uh, quite an inventory there of Danish warmbloods. Uh, I'm curious as to how you got into the breeding operation and why it was that you chose that breed. Well, uh, I've been asked that a lot, and I'm pleased to answer it. Um, I was first breeding Polish Arabian horses, and the idea occurred to me, I guess particularly because of my height, I'm, I'm over six feet, that why not try to have uh, a riding horse that would be a little bit larger than an Arabian, but not necessarily the full size of, of the large riding horses. So I knew of a, a friend of mine whose wife rode horses, but I didn't know much about them, so I called him and I said, I would like to learn more about warm bloods because I knew that the horse she had was a warm blood. And he said, that's wonderful. It just so happens that our dressage master, Life Sorensen, is here giving a clinic in Pennsylvania today. So I talked to Life, and a week later, uh, I was on a plane, and he was going to take me and did take me around Denmark a couple of times to look at horses. And, and I, I was really going to learn something about warm bloods, but I also brought a vet that I've been working with for years. And the two of us with life went to six places around Denmark twice. And I came back with six mares that were going to be bred to an Arabian stallion. In the meantime, the Arabian business was falling apart, and that stallion was sold along with others in a dispersal sale. So even though the son of that stallion did breed some uh, warm blood mares, the, the mares that I chose were chosen for a different purpose than breeding purebred warm bloods. So the next step was to get life to help me find a stallion that could uh, complement or we would see how it would work with those six mares. And uh, two horses were mentioned over and over again in Denmark, and I made a couple of trips to look at stallions, and one was Rambo and one was Midwest Ebelite, who was a year older. Both of these horses had taken the country by storm with the scores and the excitement that they had produced at the National Stallion Show. So that's the, that's the start, and it sort of goes from there. Well, obviously breeding top-class dressage horses is a challenge, and uh, you're much envied for being able to do that because there's such a demand here in this country. How do you go about choosing the stallions then, uh, Richard, because you have uh, quite a, an impressive list of stallions? Well, um, that's, that's been an evolution. The, the first stallion that I bred with, with all the mares, was Rambo. And I did that because his semen was available frozen and ready to come to the United States. That is, it, it was uh, qualified to meet the requirements of the United States Department of Agriculture. So I did that, uh, and at the same time, I began to realize that the next step is 
when we sell Phillies, I want to be in a position to help the clients choose a proper stallion for their offspring. And, of course, we need to do the same thing here. So I was active. I probably took three trips a year for at least two years looking at stallions and then, again, with the help of um, Life Sorensen, we found the, uh, the stallion Don Shufro. And um, he was the first stallion that I thought would not take us backwards as we uh, wanted to breed the, the Rambo offspring. Uh, Rambo had a, a marvelous athletic ability and a marvelous, powerful way of going, very soft. And Don Shufro had the same thing. And that was after looking at stallion after stallion after stallion. So now we have two stallions. But the stallion, Don Shufro, was owned by Blue Horse Stud in Denmark. And they were um, very cooperative and very helpful in meeting the requirements of the USDA for importing for us to import uh, semen into this country. But lots of the small farmers simply didn't want to do it or didn't know how to do it or weren't interested in dealing with the U.S. client. So it was, it was basically their stallions as the, um, the sort of the fallback or the second generation and third generation stallions that we, that we've used. Well, obviously, Don Shufro has some very exciting progeny. Heather, I want to come back to you, but because obviously you made a selection with with Paragon and others. You know the Rambo line; these are all well known to you. Selecting a horse that at that very early age is is something of an educated guess, isn't it? What were you looking for? Because he, he was long in the leg. You're long in the leg. The, these are tall horses. But that's not all. I mean, what were you looking for when you decided this was the right breeding and uh, this could be a horse that would take you to Grand Prix? Um, those are great questions, and I think I have, um, at least in my head, like pretty clear ideas about, about what I do look for. Um, and first of all, I will say that when I looked for the opportunity to buy um, a horse like Paragon, I really wasn't thinking that I had to have a horse that was necessarily, you know, that had to be international, had to be for me. You know, I didn't really buy him with the intention of having to have my next, hopefully, Grand Prix horse. So, you know, some things are left to, um, you know, to find out after the breeding is done. But I just wanted something that maybe I could train up a little bit and sell, and it turned out he was way better than that. But, um I, I um, had the opportunity to, when I was working for Richard at Oak Hill Ranch, um, to start in the mares that he imported from Denmark for breeding. So they had to be um, trained a bit to go through the saddle rating test at the when the Danish um, judges would come over every two years to look at his stock and to evaluate them and to judge them for breeding stock and to rate them for the, the stud book and the mare books and things like that. So uh, Paragon's mother was one of those, and um, Richard imported her, um, her name was Pari Lord, 
um, when she was two and a half, so pretty soon after she was imported, I got to get her started and um, going with some training on the in on the ground and then under saddle. And um, with with this particular choice um, that I made to buy one of her foals, it was easy because she was a pleasure to ride. Even at that age, to do all the groundwork was so easy, and to ride her was just a, kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> So it wasn't boring that she was so easy, but just um, she's a very nice temperament and very nice to sit on, very soft and elastic in her back, nice, three nice gates, and completely uncomplicated. So that means, you know, a ton to me. And then I knew that, you know, having her crossed with um, Don Shufro would you know, be likely to be a good horse just from other Don Shufro offspring that I also had the opportunity to train and start riding under saddle um, for Richard too, working for him. So it was a great opportunity to uh, learn how to select foals and it's, a, you know, it's knowledge that I'll always have. I'm really grateful for that because I can um, maybe have a little better idea than um, than others who haven't been around a lot of breeding and seeing how to evaluate and what you're looking for in the parents. Um, so that was, um, you know, a pretty educated guess, maybe more education than guess on what Paragon turned out like. But um, he said, he, even so, he exceeded my expectations. Well, clearly this is a process, Richard, and it takes a while to build a foundation stock as you have. And I want to ask more about, Heather, uh, about foal selection. But first of all, we've got to have the mare. It's the chicken or the egg, isn't it? Richard, when you were selecting the mares, because we often, you know, we have to remember that the mares are every bit as if not often more important than the stallions. But what were you looking for in the mares and the very foundation stock that you established, and how long ago was that? Well, the first mares that I mentioned in the earlier part of the interview were purchased, I believe it was 1992, and there we were looking for uh, elastic movement, clear gates, good athletic ability, and uh, horses that had refinement that would not be um, wouldn't that would work well with Arabian stallions. Of course, as I've explained, that that uh, experiment did not proceed. So, uh, of that group of, of mares, we had two or three crops, and then uh, we were offered a, an excellent chance as a result of uh, the frequent trips to Denmark, the Danish Warm Blood Association offered us the opportunity to work with them to select another group of mayors that they thought would would be more appropriate as uh, mayors for Rambo. And I agree with you totally. In fact... Uh, I think that the mayor is more than half of the uh, of the combination. It's a question whether it's sixty percent or seventy percent or some other high number. The stallion, of course, is necessary in order to, to produce a foal, but 
the breeding and the qualities of the mare bring more to the party with the finished product than the stallion does. So where we are now, we're in an enviable position to be working on the second and third and fourth generation of breeding that has occurred here at Oak Hill. And the reason it's multiple of that, we will have uh, one mare line who has offspring that are down the line from her. So we'll get her and her fillies both producing offspring. And um, so so that's how it works. We, we really do focus on the mare and then know... We use the mare also to test stallions. There's, there's one mare here that was produced out of the first group of imported mares, and she can almost always produce a winner. So if she doesn't produce a winner, it's the stallion's fault as far as I'm concerned. How many mares and stallions do you have, Richard? Well, uh, I have two stallions that are actively breeding now. We have a young stallion who is not actively breeding, but he was the first stallion approved by the Danes in the United States. So that's that's a very special thing, I think. Uh, we, are, we are expecting uh, eight foals this year, and we, we keep, we have a, an active group of, of eight or nine broodmares. This year, we didn't catch all of the broodmares because we normally stop breeding in May, and this year we stopped breeding in May, and I, in fact, we, we bred till the middle of May, but there was an extreme hot spell that brought temperatures up to 100 degrees in the last two weeks of May, and we lost a couple of foals. Well, Heather, I want to come back to you when you're talking about foal selection and that based on what you have learned over the years about uh, what you need to look for, it's more about that education than guesswork, and clearly it worked for you with Paragon. What would you say to people listening that they should be looking for in a foal that is hardly formed? I mean, I know you, you helped him foal, didn't you? So you, you knew what you were getting right from the start. Well, like I said, I knew, I knew, hoped I would get um, something. I expected something even before I saw him, just because of understanding the genetics in both parents and um, the the mare herself. Um, you know, understanding also the, the mares behind her. She was from one of the strongest mare lines in all of Denmark. Um, so I would suggest that if you are looking for, uh, you know, a horse that's younger than riding age that you can't sit on and feel that you should try to do, to do as much research on the parents as possible. And, um, of course, it's a very good sign if the parents have had uh, a number of offspring that have been either successful already in competition, um, if the offspring have proven themselves to be good riding horses, and maybe not just, you know, breed show horses, but have also gone on to be successful in competition. And um, just to research as much as possible about the, um, you know, the the qualities um, in the parents. And, you know, then I think there's some windows that you can evaluate the young horses, and they say it's three days and three weeks and three years, and or three months, too. Um, maybe it's all four. And I think that's some truth to that. And just to kind of watch out as far as judging uh, too harshly on babies that are at awkward growth 
stages, and um, there were definitely some stages that I was, I just wanted to look the other way with Paragon because <laughs> he was beautiful, really beautiful when he was born, and, and his first trip around the pasture as, a, as just a two-day-old foal was fantastic, and then at three months, he was also quite stunning, but, you know, between that and three years, it's really, there was not much to look at, and you got to just be a little careful the the age at which you um, are going to evaluate a young horse if you're out to buy one, and definitely take uh, somebody who's you know experienced at picking young horses if you're if you're not experienced yourself because it can be really really challenging, and you can go sometimes with a you know a big name, um, but if you don't understand the kind of temperament that goes with the with the bloodline that you're getting, um, you know, you could, it could really just be a, I guess it could go anywhere, but, um, the more you know about the reputation of the, the genes that you're getting into, the, the definitely the better. And I think there's a huge, uh, advantage to understanding the bloodlines of, of the horse that you're riding and just, again, being able to ride for a breeding farm like Oak Hill Ranch and seeing how many, characteristics follow the bloodlines was just a a very great experience for me because um, not a lot of trainers get to do that. You might get uh, various bloodlines in your training program, but when you see, you know, five or six or more from one particular bloodline, you can really start to see the characteristics that match the genes and um, really to, to understand that is a big advantage in picking young horses. So, you know, if you've got a knack for it, great. If not, then um, try to definitely get with somebody that, that has experience picking them because it's um, it's not a science. It takes a lot of takes a lot of experience and a and a particular eye and knowledge on on the genetics. Yeah, I, I would just jump in and and say that the buyer could take a look at the female tail line. And the stronger that is, the stronger the product is likely to be. And as Heather's just mentioned, uh, if you don't see the horse at those particular dates, and you therefore you don't see the horse that you expected to see as a buyer visiting a breeding farm, uh, just be patient and say, okay, I don't have to buy today. I'm going to come back and look at this horse later and see uh, if I'm getting, uh, you know, if I'm getting the expected result of being patient. For example, uh, one of our strongest producing mares is named Rambler. And I chose her as the first offspring of Rambo to carry on the breeding program with his blood. And when she was at an awkward age, around two, I told myself, this is sad. I've made a mistake. I didn't get the right horse. But guess what? She produces a home run almost every time. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it is all about that uh, lineage on the on the mare's side. You mentioned, Heather, you know, at the, at, about knowing the parentage. It, and then you went on to explain about the bloodlines. You really need to go back, don't you, as far as you can and study that. It is a, a, a study in itself, isn't it, understanding that breed? Because you clearly now have the knowledge, the expertise of that particular breed of, of Danish warmbloods. Would you always now prefer to stick with that breed, or do you favor any other breeds? Well, well what I think, oh, 
Yeah, Richard, you go ahead. Is this, I didn't know who the question was for. Who is the question for? Well, either of you. Go ahead, Richard, and then we'll come back to Heather. Okay. I, I'm breeding at this stage of the game what I know how to breed, and very cautiously we'll try other stallions. Uh, the mares, I think I, I'm better off keeping the mares I've got than buying one I don't know much about because we've got a lot of knowledge about what they do produce, as, as you've just heard from Heather. She took advantage of that. Heather, your thoughts? Um, so the question was again? Well, in, in, in terms of you favoring the Danish warm blood now, ah, ba based right. on the knowledge that you have of that breed, uh, but clearly as an international Grand Prix rider, y y presumably you would keep your options open if you were offered other breeds. Do you favor any other breeds, or, or now are you sort of so obviously with Paragon, <laughs> it's a great success, so um, you, you've obviously got a great uh, affinity for this breed. Yeah, well, if you look at the um, the pedigree on Paragon, the uh, you know, Danish Warmblood is a pretty new registry in the scheme of things, and all of his lineage is German. Uh, Don Schufro is definitely, he was born and uh, bred and born in Germany, and then he was bought by the Danes and uh, put into the Danish dead book. And on the, his mother's side is mostly Holsteiner, and that's German as well, so... Um, I think what Danish Warmblood is to me is um, a collection of horses that are that are judged for the qualities that I like, um, but they do you know it's a it's a mixture of different um, you know centuries of Warmblood from other parts of Europe. So that's a, a good question. But I do like what the Danes select for, and um, it's a rideable horse, really elastic horse with enough kind of nerve and temperament, you know, to be exciting but not crazy. <laughs> so. Uh, that's why I tend to, you know, keep leaning towards Danish horses, and, and they just prove themselves to me over and over again that, that it is the breed I like, and in particular, the ones from Oak Hill, because like I said, I know the generations, you know, Richard said earlier, he's three and four generations into the mares that he has there, and so he's not just going with an unknown. I mean, if, if he brings a new mare in, he would, uh, you know, test the foals after and maybe, uh, you know, from different stallions and see what she produces until it's sort of proven. And then he makes her more of a foundation mare. But um, that's what's such a, an advantage to me, knowing what he's done in his particular program. Uh, I just feel really confident, uh, you know, selecting foals from him because because of how much I know the generations of mares that he's, um, you know, either calling out because they're not producing well or they're not producing rideable horses or ones he keeps and, um, you know, uses again and again and uses their daughters and their daughters. And so it's, uh, it's, it's a lot to do with the, the particular selection that the Danes do and especially what Richard does with his breeding program that keeps me coming back. Well, Richard, finally, um, of course, our listeners are going to be wondering, knowing the success that Heather has had with Paragon, uh, do you have any other little Paragons in the back paddocks that they should know about? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, <laughs> what, what I have is a filly with, uh, out of the same dam as, um, as Paragon, Parry Lord, by Rambo. And her name is Panama. 
we have bred her uh, two or three times, and each time the foal has been outstanding. Uh, we now have one that I don't want to sell because you have to keep the replacement for the uh, for the great mares. So uh, yes, we have we have the potential uh, to produce the same product, and in fact. Uh, even though it's a silly that I'm going to keep this year, just to show how much the blood can be powerful, I'm using and have here at, at the ranch standing a son of Don Shufro named Don Caruso, and he, with Panama, produced our number one foal this year, who is just a, a great joy to, to look at. And looking to the future, Richard, what are your long-term goals? Because obviously breeding is a long-term project, isn't it? It is. Uh, the long-term uh, hope is to keep at least two or three lines of high-class mares going so that you can provide the uh, expectations of riders of a class that Heather is because it's it's just as troublesome to keep a world-class horse as it is to keep something else. So we're focused on the very, very best, the 1% or 2% of the top of the world, and um, that's what we go for here. Well, congratulations on obviously what is a very successful breeding program there, Richard, and, and for producing Paragon. I think uh, Heather will be forever grateful for that. Well, I'm grateful for what she has done with the horse. Terrific. I'm grateful to have him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us this week, Richard, and good luck with your breeding program. Thank you. Well, Heather, that was really helpful. I think, you know, it's going to raise a lot of questions, too, from our listeners about, you know, the selection of foals and selection of mares and selection of stallions. So hopefully we've uh, sown a few seeds here. And uh, if we have any questions, then, of course, we can always send them to you, can't we, Heather? Oh, sure. <laughs> Plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well I don't know if, if you caught when uh, what Richard was saying about his the stallion that was approved. Um, when he's talking about his young stallion, he has two that are um, mature breeding stallions now, but he has one that he mentioned he, he bred. And I don't know if it was clear that I think um, – it's worth mentioning that um, he that is the first stallion that was bred in the U.S. that was approved by Danish Hornblad. So it really is quite an accomplishment. You know, he's just been um, such a responsible, educated breeder that I think that just to reiterate that he has bred the first stallion to be approved. He's bred and and raised in the U.S., the first stallion to be approved by Danish Hornblad. So, I mean, that's just huge. Yeah. Hats off to him. Absolutely. Which, which stallion, to remind us about the name? His name is Ripline, and he's by Hotline, and his mother is out of Cavan, who's an older stallion that was owned by um, Blue Horse in Denmark. So there's a lot of refinement and beauty and athleticism, and it's just a, a very, very nice stallion. He's just, uh, I believe he's four now, or coming four, I think, and um, very nice gates, three super gates. Really beautiful, beautiful stallion and um, a lot of expression. And I think there will be big things to come with him. Well, 
I asked Richard if he had any uh, other paragons in the back paddocks that we should know about. Do you, do you have any other Danish warm-blood young stock that you're bringing up through the ranks, Heather? Well, I do have a, a one coming six, and I've had him since he was a foal also. And Richard talks about his mare that is from Paragon's mother and Rambo, and her name is Panama. So I did buy one, a, a foal from Panama, and this foal is named Poitras, and um, he's on my website. You can see pictures. He's very beautiful, long legs, also 18 hands. And he's by Solos Lentinus. So I um, am working hard to get that one to... Um, learn a bit about dressage and get stronger and see where where that goes. But he's um, he's got a lot of potential, so fingers crossed. Would you ever have any mares and breed yourself? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> I will leave that to the professionals. I, I wear enough hats as it is. And um, breeding, I don't take lightly. I think it's to be done by professionals and or at least with the, you know, with the advisor of the professionals who are really in it and they study it and they know what they're doing and they also have the facility and, you know, the the ability within their program to have the percentages, you know, of course, no matter how good of a breeding program you have, some are going to be really superstars and some aren't. And that's just the percentages that, you know, that are just realistic. So if you're just going to breed one or two, you know, it's it's harder on an individual to absorb those percentages if you don't hit really a home run with the one or two that you do um, than a whole breeding operation. So I would rather just work with a breeder and um, like I do and leave all of that stuff to them. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about, you know, in many years' time in your retirement, you having, you know, a couple of mares in the back paddocks when you retired from Grand Prix riding and training you don't you don't see yourself as a breeder and eventually then no I still I still would say no it's a really yeah. tough thing to do and a lot of things go wrong um you know and even if you know you, you you meet some people who have tried it and they've had nothing but bad luck and some that have tried it and have never had a problem so it's it's just you take so much so many chances and I don't know if at that point in my life if I would you know look into you know, having such responsibility and, you know, quite a lot of work involved or if I would, you know, want to take an easier road. But I, I just, I don't see myself doing it. You know, it, it's a good point because I think so many people think, oh, well, they've got a nice mare and they should breed with her because, well, she, she's she gone, you know, not as sound as she might be or she's, mm -hmm. you know, past her competition career. Uh, there seems to be almost a default choice there amongst mare owners generally this is not an american condition i think it's generally people thinking oh well we'll you know put her in foal get a foal out of her there's a lot of sort of casual breeding isn't isn't there that you know really has not had the kind of preparation and forethought that it should have to maintain the integrity of sport mm -hmm. horses generally Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I sort of disagree with it um, because I think that just because it's a mare, even if she's really nice herself as a riding horse, if you don't really know what her genetics are and what you should really cross her with to make a really nice, um, you know, offspring, you know, you, I, I just think you need to to know enough what you're doing so that you make the right crosses and you make the right offspring, and you know, an individual that is you know, as a phenotype is really nice, is a big part of it. 
but it's also nice to know what her sisters are like, what her half-sisters are like, what her grandmother has produced. You know, it's just nice to know more about the the genes, you know, rather than just, well, she's a nice mare, and now she's not sound, so I'll breed her. And, of course, it can go well, but I'm, I'm, I lean more towards, you know, advising people, leave the breeding to the breeders, and or at least get the advice from professional breeders because it's a, it's an entire like life at the, at the career to be a breeder and they know the most what they're doing and they study a lot more than you know just a, a rider they they do so much more uh, they have so much more focus on what it really takes to be a producer so um and you know there's also a lot of risk and breeding a mare, of course, if she's going to carry the foal, there are many things that can go wrong. So it's, it's a lot to consider also. I mean, in any species, I'm sure there's risk in pregnancy and birth. And it's um, it's something to consider also, especially if you've got an aged mare that, you know, hasn't had a foal until she's over 10 or um, in her teens. And you see people doing that too. So um, I'm just a little more skeptical on, on um, just jumping in and saying, well, I'll just breed her. It's a lot to consider, I think. And not only the, all the points that you've mentioned, but also the financial considerations too. If things, as you said, do go wrong and you're running into enormous veterinary bills that you may not have budgeted for. So it's not something to be taken lightly. No, it isn't. And I think if you if you have someone who knows a bit about looking at foals, it's, it's really more economical to go out and shop for a foal than it is to try to make your own. And that's... Um, you know, foal prices aren't that high unless, you know, it's something in a price, like something by total, it's probably going to be really expensive. But your average price of a foal is going to be probably less than actually what it would take to get the breeding done, all the veterinary expenses and all the risk and all the aftercare and, you know, the keeping the mare while she's in foal and all that. I think that, um, you know, you're, you're better off buying the foal that you already see standing on the ground and, um, you know, pick the one you want once it's already born. Yeah. Save those maternal instincts, maybe, for some puppies. <laughs> well, yeah. Go find a good puppy at the pound. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Heather. Well, thank you for that. Uh, we do have a question for you, actually, from Sarah Suppen. She wrote in and she said, I would love to hear Heather talk about leg position. I notice she rides with more bend in the knee than some others. If you compare Heather's leg to, say, Ulla Salzgeber, who is also very tall, you see a much different leg position, and both are beautiful and effective. As a fellow tall rider, does the size of the horse determining, determine stirrup length? Hmm. Well, the size of the horse or the size of the rider? Um, because she mentioned that she's a tall rider and Ulla is tall and tall, um, so I don't I don't know as much as if as if it's a matter of the size of the horse. Although if a tall rider has a, a very small horse, there could you know you could understandably have to shorten your stirrups a bit just to get your lower leg on the horse. I mean I've been on some smaller horses where it, you know I can barely feel their sides because they're too small for me. So maybe my my stirrups a little shorter on a horse like that. But I think in general, if you have a rider and a horse that's the appropriate size for that rider, that um, there's an angle that um, biomechanically is quite effective uh, between the pelvis, which should be vertical, and the thigh, which I think should be at a 45-degree angle, and then the lower leg, which um, 
could be anywhere from a 90 degree angle between the thigh and the lower leg to a hundred degree if um, the rider's a little more advanced. But I don't really, I don't like to go any um, more straight in the knee than that because I think that with your thigh straighter down, um, rather than keeping an angle in your thigh, you will lose leverage. And if you lose leverage, you lose core strength. And core strength and um, thigh strength, I think, are two of the biggest tools, the biggest um, you know pieces of strength that a rider can use really effectively to keep the horse in balance and and themselves in balance without relying on the stirrups for strength or um if you rely on your stirrups for strength, you might also rely on your shoulders for strength and then maybe even your hands. So I do ride with a, a shorter, a shorter, well, I don't want to say shorter stirrup, probably shorter stirrup, but definitely more bend in the knee probably than majority out there. But it's really based on my uh, research and understanding of biomechanics and um, what it takes to really keep my strength more in my stomach muscles, back muscles, pelvis, and thighs in all directions you know thigh thigh strength doesn't just mean to put your thigh on the horse there's a lot of thigh strength that you could use top of the thigh outside of the thigh um back of the thigh and inside of the thigh but it's in um, many different ways that your thigh can be used to give you leverage and uh, especially in half halts if your horse wants to go on the forehand having your thigh more out in front of you is a is a matter of of leverage and without making a big long story about that <laughs> that's kind of a um, main reason that you might see my my knee a bit more bent than some well i hope that uh, answers the question for you sarah thank you very much heather well that about what? wraps it up for us this week heather um, when do you get uh, into the show ring now i know things will start to warm up as they get towards the end of the year down there in, in uh, florida well, I am considering doing something small to start with to get Paragon just started in the Grand Prix without any pressure, just something small and no big deal. And um, then I'll probably start his first uh, Grand Prix CDI in January, most likely. That's my plan. Very exciting. So any time to do anything else? It sounds like you've got a barn full of uh, clients, lots of teaching. Any, any clinics? Because I know you do a lot of clinics, too. I do, but I'm most likely going to slow down on those for um, these next few months. Just uh, It's hard to get away from, from Wellington when everything gets started. It's pretty hard to get away from here. So have you had a chance to really celebrate uh, the, the Pan American Games success, or have you had to just hit the ground running and get back into business? Or do you, do you take a vacation when you can over the winter? No. Vacation? What? <laughs> <laughs> no, but... But, you know, the excitement and just the energy that the Pan Am experience gave me is a little bit of a vacation every day because even if I'm out in the arena teaching or riding, I still, just the energy that's still in me from that is, makes every day fun. It's it's not like, it's not like, you know, riding and teaching is that bad of a job in the first place. It's pretty, it's a pretty fortunate job to have, Um, but especially when, you know, the memory is so fresh from that experience. It's just, um, it's been fine just to go back to work and just keep remembering how it was and, and how it continues to be with Paragon. It's still, he, he's just, still just as 
he's at the, almost the same peak he was at, in Mexico. So it's been um, it's been fine. Get back in a routine and just think about how it was. It's, um, it, it, that definitely the energy is still in me from that. Well, that's a celebration right there. Um, long may last, absolutely long may that last. Well, Heather, great to have you on the show again. Before we go, I just do want to mention that Lowell Boomer, who was the founder of the U.S. Dressage Federation, sadly passed away uh, just recently, just the other day. Uh, So our condolences to his family. And also, uh, those of you who followed the Dressage Radio show will know that Brett Parbury was on the show recently, and his famous partner, Victory Salute, who he finished seventh at the World Equestrian Games on last year, uh, as you would have heard from Brett himself, that all was not well. Well, we've since learned that he does have laminitis, so uh, keep him in your thoughts, and uh, we wish uh, all of his connections the very best of luck for uh, a positive outcome for Victory Salute. Well, that wraps it up for us this week. I will be back next week with uh, Sophie Wells, the British para-dressage rider and able-bodied dressage rider. We're going to hear about how Sophie manages to juggle those two careers, and very successfully too, and is making a bid for the 2012 London Olympics. Olympic Games. Well, that about wraps it up, as I said, for this week's show. You can find out all our notes on the show notes at dressageradio.com and don't forget to check out our Facebook fan page as well and leave any comments there. And also join Paragon's fan fan page if you haven't already done so. Well, Heather, great to have you. Thank you very much for, for being with us this week. Come back and see us again soon. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. Well, that's it. I will be back, of course, at the same time, same place next week. So until then, thank you all for listening. Bye.